Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Please note that this episode contains descriptions of violence that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. This episode contains reenactments of actual news broadcasts from the events spoken about in today's show. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. Welcome to part two of my chat with former Deputy Director of the National Crime Agency, Roy McComb. If you have not yet listened to part one, I highly recommend you pausing this episode and listening to that first. Roy's career has been nothing short of incredible, from policing the highly volatile streets of Northern Ireland in the rocket truck to overseeing some of the most iconic investigations Ireland and the UK have seen. Roy dealt with not only the pressure to get results from his superiors, but also under the intense scrutiny of the media. I, I, I'd like to, if I can, just move on to a couple of your most um, notable investigations throughout your career. And I thought maybe the most um, relevant one to start with is in 2000, when um, an arrest was made of the real RA bomb team uh, found in possession of a £5,000 bomb. Now, that isn't any normal investigation that most of uh, our colleagues would be involved in. I've certainly never been involved of anything of that magnitude. Just talk us through how one finds themselves involved in such a situation. So I was privileged to be trained as a senior investigating officer, and y- you were you were on call for 
usually a week at a time for anything that could have happened from a domestic murder through to a terrorist incident and all points in between. And on this particular night, I was contacted by the control room in the police and to advise that two vehicles had been stopped um, on a main arterial road traveling from the border in towards Belfast. And that in the vehicle at the front, there were two men and in the vehicle in the rear, there was a driver with a 500 pound bomb, not a 5,000 pound bomb, 500 pound bomb, but you know, 500 pound bomb is still going to do you some serious damage. This is in context about 18 months after the terrorists of the real IRA had blown up Oma and killed 29 people. So this was the first real IRA attack since OMA and they had a bomb which was probably twice the size of the attack in OMA. So where was this 500 pound bomb going to? Wow. You know, how quickly was the destination going to be reached? Was it going to be another bloodbath that dozens of people would have been killed? You get the phone call, the monkey jumps onto your back, mm. you're suddenly in charge. And the expectation at this point was, you know, you've got three people, two vehicle convoy, two, two men in one vehicle, one in the other, and a 500 pound bomb um, to a destination as yet unknown. And, and so you have to work through the, the sequence of, you know, the how did these vehicles get to be here? Who, who conducted the, the vehicle stop? Who are the people in, in vehicle one? What's their connection to each other? Who are the, who's the person in vehicle two? Is there a link between vehicle one and vehicle two? How are the forensic examples gonna be worked through? How do we find evidence that connects each of these three people to the one vehicle that has the 500 pound bomb? And, and, and you're constantly thinking about a dozen or more things at the same time. And of course, it's not during the working day, this is 10 o'clock at night, it's, you know, the, the rain's coming on, all of the, the drama that, that com makes it complex. But even more so in the background, because the same organization had killed 29 people in Oma, there was that sort of media interest to say, this is the real IRA, they killed 29 people with a bomb, and here we have another bomb that has been stopped. And there was a focus on what are the police going to do? You know, have the are the police going to mess this up? And that that was zeroed in on yours truly. So the old expression of failure was not an option really came true. It was actually horrible to actually look at it. People are asking me for help, and it was one lady. Her arms were just hanging off, and I mean, it was there's nothing I could do. You know, you just felt helpless. You know, saying to them, the ambulance is coming in. And so we worked through the detail. We, you know, we arrested them. They were forensically bagged. They were taken away. They were taken to the police uh, custody suite. Arrangements were made to, you know, forensically examine them, search houses. And actually, what we found quite quickly was that in the um, the footwell of both vehicles was an identical two-way radio, and that became critical. And uh, I remember about a day later, we'd have the radios were examined. And uh, the forensic scientist contacted me to say the two radios are 
from the same batch. Their serial numbers are almost identical. They are tuned to the same frequency. They were set to the same channel. So you had a forensic connection between the front vehicle and the second vehicle, which was a really, really strong evidential link. And we also then found fiber evidence and fingerprint evidence to, to link the, the guys in the front vehicle to the, to the second vehicle. But I remember actually the, the phone call that came in about the radios was two minutes before I got a phone call from wow. the chief constable. I was a detective inspector, so you know, quite a, a modest rank. And here we have the chief constable who's obviously getting phone calls from, part, from government saying, what's happening with this? Mm. And I have to say, it was one of the nicest moments to be able to say, Chief Constable, I will be able to charge these people with, with, the, with the possession of the explosives because I've just had the phone call to confirm the forensic link between the two radios that were found in both vehicles. Now, I wouldn't like to have been on the call if the chief had phoned and I didn't have that information because he was <laughs> under such serious pressure to, mm. to produce a result. But it was really nice to be able to say, Chief, we've got this, you know, we're going to be charging these people because the forensic work we did proved that there was a connection between these two vehicles. And uh, that was, I have to say, a really nice moment. But here's a bizarre moment in the, the policing of terrorism in Northern Ireland. The case took so long to come to trial because of the back and forth between defence lawyers and the court. It took so long that the guy who was driving the bomb, so he's driving a 500-pound bomb in any other part of the world this guy would go to jail for life mm. but it took so long to process the case not by us but by the prosecution by the defense by the courts that the the guy pleaded guilty eventually he was sentenced and he walked out of court that day behind me time already served time already served and, and he, wow. he you know he had served a very very modest period of time like two and a half three years but because of the system and way the system works you know, he pleads guilty to having a 500-pound bomb that could have killed dozens and dozens of people, and he walks out of the court right behind me. And I thought, that's just not justice. There, there's some of the struggles, I think, of um, big investigations and often, often of homicide detectives and other detectives, no doubt, where you put in so much work and then you find that the punishments that are handed out as a result of the actions of an individual really don't sink with anyone's and it doesn't give you any sort of peace of mind I, I suppose one question i wanted to ask is often during our investigations we rely so heavily often on witnesses and witness statements and supporting you know or corroborating evidence that we found whether it be a sighting or whether it be an interaction at a petrol station whatever the scenario may be the omar bomb that we you briefly mentioned there i i know there were never no one was ever convicted of that was that because a lack of victim cooperation was it a lack of forensic evidence what were the challenges that you face which you which i wouldn't or any other other law enforcement agency would have faced anywhere else well there was no convictions largely because the forensic evidence um that put the bombers to the the scene wasn't sufficiently strong enough but when the trial was held off people who had arranged the bomb there was also a challenge put in around the reliability of some forensic evidence. So the, mm. the court or the investigation team that did the initial investigation in 1998 didn't have access to some of the more recent forensic opportunities. So when there was a reinvestigation and they found opportunities to, to gather DNA evidence, the evidence that had been gathered at the time hadn't been um, preserved in such a manner 
that the court could be confident that it hadn't been compromised in some way. Now, I think people who had been involved in the investigation would say that was just not the case. But courts being uh, making very, very clear judgments were able to say this evidence has enough of a risk around it that we can't rely upon it. So people, you know, we had we had the people who were who had built the bomb and their DNA was on a number of the, the timer units that were involved, not only in Omar, but in other bombings as well. So they had, they, their, their DNA was on multiple devices, but the court ruled that the DNA was not reliable because the way that the, 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 the exhibits had been stored. A court case against Seamus Daly has collapsed. The 45-year-old was suspected of murdering 29 people in the 1998 real IRA bomb attack in Omar. He was always denied any involvement. Daly was released from prison this afternoon after the public prosecution service decided there was not enough evidence to convict him. Which is a real gut moment, mm. you know, for people yeah. who had lost loved ones and also for detectives who'd spent, you know, years on the investigations. The, the, the investigation is one thing, but then coming face to face with these individuals and arresting them must be another. You know, there's often this... Um, code described amongst organized criminals i know there was in new york again reflecting on where he often said when he arrested these individuals they said there was a code you don't come after our families we won't come after you but i i sense that probably wasn't the same sentiment in northern ireland and i suppose what were the feelings the thoughts the observations you made of some of these individuals when you came face to face with them and many of them were uh, just simply misguided some of them were caught up in the moment there was young people young men particularly who i think reflecting back on their time served in prison, probably think that was just crazy what I was involved in. But there was also a cadre of people who were just driven by a sense of hatred towards the police or towards the, the other factions that they were opposing. And, and they were constantly in that, that, that mode of, of, you know, how can I find an opportunity to, to kill someone? So a, f a friend and colleague recently said to me that he arrested a particularly a nasty individual who was undoubtedly involved in the, in the construction of some of the big bombs that went off in Northern Ireland, but also the major bombs that went off in England. He was definitely involved in some of the construction of those devices. These guys never spoke when they went into custody. They were they exercised their right to silence, so mm -hmm. they wouldn't even acknowledge that you were in the room. They wouldn't say their name. They wouldn't say anything. But on this way, on on this guy's arrest to the point that he was placed in a and a helicopter being taken to the custody suite, he simply said, I know your name. If I ever get you, what a death I would give you. Wow, that's chilling. Was he capable of doing it? Absolutely. You know, this guy, this guy is a mass murderer. You need to be something special if you think that that doesn't affect you or play in your mind. And the fact that my colleague said this to me recently, probably 15 plus years after it was said, it has stayed with him. You know, so there are lots of people who were caught up in the moment of, of the troubles and probably regret what they were involved in. But there is a hard cadre of people who think they would do it all over again and would think nothing of a kicking life. Hi, and thanks for listening to Protect and Serve. If you're enjoying the episode, please consider giving us a rating and a review so other people can find our show. And don't forget to hit follow so you'll be notified as soon as the next episode is available. Now, let's get back to the episode. You talked about earlier on um, about some of the, I say, skills and tactics of um, the RA being copied around the world. And, you know, I reflect back on also um, an operation, arrest operation for the Belfast rocket team. 
that were using homemade horizontal mortars, which were later copied in Colombia and Iraq. You know, that's, first of all, quite terrifying to kind of understand the totality and the gravity of what that could cause and the injury and the death and destruction. And then from a policing perspective, how do you, how do you go about getting involved in that sort of a matter? So the IRA had, a, had an engineering department. It sounds b- bizarre to say it. They had an engineering department whose job was to fill the gaps from where they, the provisional IRA couldn't buy traditional commercial weapons on the black market. They would make their own weapons and largely they were involved in making mortars and other similar explosive devices. So they, they invented um, homemade mortars that went through various iterations from quite small mortars that you would see, maybe the size of a Coke can, to what became known as barrack busters, barrack being a word used for police stations. Barrack buster would be a, a large gas cylinder that you would have in a, in a commercial premise, and they cut the top off it, filled it with homemade explosives, created a, a, a framework in which they placed this this um, this gas cylinder, and they fired multiple rockets over the fence line at police stations and army stations. They used it on the attack in Downing Street back in in nineteen oh goodness ninety one was it ninety during the during the, yeah. um, the Iraq War. This was a well planned attack aimed at the centre of government. On fire in Whitehall, the van that was used to launch the mortars at Number Ten Downing Street while the war cabinet was in session. Go back up the street, it is not safe. Move. Police have been convinced for some time now that an IRA cell was still in this country. First priority for them now will be to examine the van and the missiles to see whether they provide any clues as to who the attackers were. So the engineering department was very sophisticated and they they were able to identify um, how they used the uh the, the 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 physical actions of how an explosive device would work and they made homemade versions of what were military grade weapons uh, and one of the latest ones was known as the horizontal mortar and um this was literally a, a bomb in, in the shape of a gas cylinder uh, that was fired horizontally through oftentimes through the side of of a of a car that was parked close to the target and it was fired remotely, sometimes using uh, what was the sort of flash photography. So terrible incident in Northern Ireland where a police officer was killed and another very badly injured was triggered by the flash of a camera that was mm-hmm. used to, to trigger a photosensitive um, switch inside a vehicle, which then triggered the device, which was built into the boot of a car that then fired the mortar horizontally through the a cardboard partition that had been used to replace the side of the car and it and it, it was fired into the police vehicle which killed killed a colleague and, and severely injured another colleague um so you know there was a real capability within the provisional movement belfast was absolutely using them for uh, as often as they could and, and we had a number of incidents in belfast and they became known as the sort of belfast rocket team and they were setting up the, their devices to be used at choke points where police vehicles might come to a stop, you know, traffic lights and stuff like that. Uh, and, and they were being used, you know, almost like you were throwing confetti around the place. It was so common that, you know, we needed a real determined effort to, um, 
to, to tackle them. One particular night, uh, there was an attack on a, on a patrol that was traveling from one police station to another, and it contained the, the night shift for the, the police station. So the, the, the Land Rover was filled with police officers, maybe eight or nine police officers would have been in that vehicle, and they missed mm. by, you know, a yard or two. So the difference between pressing the button one second earlier and pressing it one second later was the survival of or the murder of eight or nine police officers. We were part of a team to try to identify the, the Belfast rocket team. Uh, and we, you know, we ended up arresting, we weren't able to charge them, unfortunately, but the effect of arresting them showed to the provisional IRA, we know who you are. We know this mm. is your team. And we know that, um, you know, you now know that we're, we're watching you and we're on you. I mean, on that particular arrest operation, I was told, you know, not only do we have the right people, but you as the senior investigating officer, the, the senior officer in charge at that point, you need to do all you can to keep them in custody for as long as possible. Because if you don't, we have indications that they will simply be released. And this weekend that they will go out and they will try to kill police officers all over again. So we had an option at that point to uh, request the extension of their detention uh, but it needed to be approved by the Secretary of State. Now, you don't just write to the Secretary of State and say, can we have some extra time? You need to <laughs> lay out a really, really compelling argument as to mm. why people should be detained in custody. But I had it at the background, senior special branch officers saying to me, if you can't keep them inside, these guys are going out this weekend to kill someone. Wow. That sort of focuses the mind a little bit yeah. and it sharpens There's your- the pressure. There's the pressure. It sharpens your writing skills when you know mm. you have to write a compelling narrative for the Secretary of State to justify it. Thankfully, um, he did, and we were able to keep him in custody uh, for an extra 48 hours. Uh, but you know the, that was the fine difference between releasing them on a Friday and possibly having dead police officers on the Sunday. But some of that technology, as you've mentioned, Dolly, was copied and it was shared by the provisional IRA into places like Colombia. Three members of the organization were captured uh, and they were sharing information with the, the FARC guerrillas in, in Colombia. And, uh, and, and there was clear evidence that some of that technology found in Colombia had been copied by the provisional IRA and, and shared with them. So, you know, there's a brotherhood of terrorism around the world and, and whether it's in, in Colombia or into Iraq, some of that technology had definitely been seen around the world and it emanated from the provisional IRA. Your investigative work really came to the forefront um, in the last 10 years when you were appointed to lead the Stephen Lawrence Corruption Inquiry on behalf of the Metropolitan Police Service. Um, to give some context to our viewers right around the world in terms of who Stephen Lawrence was and how you became to be appointed into that position to lead that investigation, can you talk us through, uh, obviously, the murder of Stephen Lawrence, the problems, and then your appointment and the investigation that followed? Yes, yeah, so in 1993, from memory, April 93, Stephen Lawrence, who was 18 years of age, young young kid in um, in London, and he and his friend were attacked by a number of, of white guys who were determined to carry out a, a racist attack. And, and Stephen was sadly stabbed a number of times and and, and and bled to death on the night that he was stabbed. What do we want? Justice! When do we want it? Now! What do we want? 
Justice! When do we want it? Now! It was 10.30 at night two weeks ago. Stephen was standing at the bus stop on his way home when five or six white men came across the road. Then, without any provocation, he was stabbed and beaten. We are very used to this type of thing where life is regarded as cheap in South Africa. And, uh, but nevertheless, uh, it's a sense of disconcern that it should happen in a country like Britain. Uh, the Metropolitan Police investigation failed to bring to justice the people who were involved in that investigation, despite the fact that they were pretty well known within 24 hours of the investigation being conducted. It's two weeks since Stephen's death, and there's not even one. They're not showing to us that they are out there doing their job and arresting people. What's the point in me giving them the information if they're not going to act on it? Uh, and so it was some years later when the Metropolitan Police uh, conducted a, a review and further investigation that, uh, that, that forensic evidence connected uh, a number of these people to the to the to the attack and I think two of them were, were ultimately convicted of the murder but to this day the people who carried out the attack have been named in the public eye and and, and certainly three of them remain um, unprosecuted. When I joined the National Crime Agency in 2014 there had been a, a review conducted by a Queen's Council at the behest of the Home Office who were who was asked to identify whether any corruption had played a part in the failure of the Metropolitan Police to, to bring to justice those people who'd killed Stephen. Uh, and he produced a report that said effectively there was enough reason to believe that there was corruption and there should be um, an independent investigation. Um, a couple of days after I joined the NCI, I was told, you're it, your, your job was to lead this. And of course, I played no role in the, in the investigation, which is why I was, I suppose, suitable to take it on. But... Again, the, the scale of it, the, the challenge, the public focus on, well, here we are, the NCA, which was only a year old at that point, and we were being told, take this investigation and bring it to a point where, you know, we will close down once and for all this allegation that there was police corruption. I led the investigation for a little over three, three and a half years. Um, it went on for a little period after I finished my time with it, but for three, three and a half years, I led the investigation. My entire job was to set up the structures, the processes, systems, recruit the staff, establish a major incident room, primarily to build a relationship with the, you know, the, the parents of Stephen uh, and his, his good friend, Dwayne Brooks, who'd been with him the night he was stabbed. Um, three very different people, mom, dad, and Dwayne were three different families. They, they didn't have a relationship with each other but my job was to give them confidence that what we were going to do would 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 get to the end of this matter there was really no guidelines as to how this investigation should be done because we were not only reviewing the original investigation but we were reviewing linked investigations to the people who'd been detectives on the first investigation so there was lots of moving parts mm. and i think we we, we obtained well over a hundred thousand pages of, um, of documentation from the Metropolitan Police. It was a huge investigation. It was complex, it was challenging. We were, I described it once as trying to find a needle in a haystack when you had a field full of haystacks in a county full of fields, in a, in a country full of, of towns that had, had fields full of haystacks. And there may not even be a needle there. Uh, you know, the people were talking about the, the corruption 
and and neither members of the family could nail down what they particularly thought was the corruption. They they thought simply that the failure of the police to arrest and prosecute must indicate corruption. Well, you know that's that's a sort of a a sense that people properly had, but we had to prove to a criminal standard what that corruption might be, and it was very very hard to you know to tie down what might actually be the corruption. I mean, it was a very a very challenging investigation for three and a bit years. Uh, we made recommendations, I think, ultimately for. Uh, some officers to be prosecuted, but I can't comment that I wasn't there at that point. But a very, a very challenging investigation, but one I was very privileged to be part of. My client Neville Lawrence has asked me to read his statement. My life was torn apart by the senseless murder of my son over 18 years ago. I am therefore full of joy and relief that today, finally, two of my son's killers have been convicted for his murder. When you establish that um, that investigative team and the setup, and your initial interactions with the Met in terms of that particular matter, was there any pushback or resistance from them in terms of what you were setting out to achieve, or was it they were they embracing uh, to some extent uh, the need to have that inquiry? I think they accepted that there was uh, there was a need for it. I think, like any organisation, they were always going to feel personally slighted. I made it mm. clear that the Metropolitan Police that I was dealing with in 2014 to 2017 wasn't the Metropolitan Police of 1993. So Mm. I wasn't investigating this Metropolitan Police. I was investigating that Metropolitan Police. They didn't obstruct the investigation. We had lots of very frank conversations about certain material that we wanted and how we would achieve it. And, you know, all those, the, the, the ebb and flow of how do you obtain information from many, many years ago? How do you securely hold it? How do you make sure that the Metropolitan Police of today isn't compromised? So we had lots of really challenging conversations, but I really made it clear to them that I think a win for them was for me to be able to say to the families, we've had nothing but cooperation from the Met. What does a post-policing and law enforcement career look like for Roy McComb now? What's, uh, what, what's on your bucket list of things to try and achieve? Yeah, I still think of myself as being in my, you know, my juvenile era that I'm still, mm. still learning and still trying to to do a bit. Um, fortunate after I left the NCN in 2019, I, I got involved in, in sort of the private sector, uh, and I've been involved in a number of contracts supporting organisations such as the United Nations and um, doing some work uh, overseas on on a foreign and Commonwealth Office project. So uh, I like to think of myself as taking what I've been privileged to learn and to to pick up and, and sharing that into the wider um, into the wider world. Well, Roy, the last hour and 20 minutes has been incredibly fascinating and somewhat eye-opening as to the challenges that you experienced as a young constable going up through the ranks in your early days through to the the critically important work you did in the latter part of your career with the NCA and the Stephen Lawrence Inquiry. So I think uh, on behalf of myself, thank you ever so much for your service. Thank you ever so much for sharing your experiences. And uh, I suppose on behalf of me and my colleagues, we wish you the best of luck in the remaining career that you pursue. Ollie, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for, for listening to me for all this time. Thank you. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. 
This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network. 